Hey, welcome to Chase Oaks. Whether you are watching online or podcasting or at one of our physical campuses, we're so glad that you've joined us today. I'm a mom of two girls. They're 15 and 17. And one thing that I've learned about raising teenagers is that you never know what you're going to get. One day I heard one of my daughters sobbing in the living room, so I rushed out to see what had happened and asked her, oh my gosh, are you okay? And through her tears, she said, I'm just so lucky that my boyfriend loves me and is kind to me, and I'm just so happy. And she's saying this as she's crying, like somebody purposely ran over our dog. So I did what any good mom would do, and I just turned around and walked out of the room. Because I heard what she said, but the words coming out of her mouth didn't make any sense to me. And then she got mad at me that I wasn't comforting her as she was crying about how happy she was. Sometimes raising teenagers feels like you're living on a different planet. You're speaking the same language, you're using the same words, but the words don't make any sense. And at times I find myself asking, what is happening right now? What is this crazy planet that I'm living on? In some ways, this is what it's felt like to me this past year and a half. It feels like we've been living in some kind of alternate reality, where we're speaking the same language, we're using the same words, but now the words have different meanings for different people. And things that I thought wouldn't be a big deal to people were, and things that I thought definitely would be a big deal to people weren't. And I just wanted someone to explain the rules to me because so much didn't make sense and it seemed like we were operating under a new paradigm and I didn't understand the new rules of engagement. I'm not suggesting that life before the pandemic was perfect, but this past year and a half has been almost comically catastrophic. And the truth is none of us came out of this season unscathed. So how do we engage the people in our lives and the world around us when we're feeling exhausted and our patience is wearing thin? How do we interact with people? We've been in a series in Titus, and the author Paul is writing to one of his team members and talking to him about putting some things in order in the Church of Crete. And this letter just gives really practical advice on faith and conduct. And as Jeff said in week one, it's just as applicable today as it was back in Paul's time. So we continue the letter in chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. In verse 1, Paul begins by telling Titus, Hey, remind the believers to submit to those in authority, to be obedient to the government. And it would be tempting here to think, well, Paul doesn't understand politics today. He doesn't know the kind of politicians that we have had or that we currently have in power. He doesn't know the type of leaders that we're dealing with. So that's easy for him. Except that Paul is writing this under Emperor Nero's reign. Nero was a cruel and wicked ruler, and he's known for his brutal persecution of Christians. Sometimes, just for fun, he would have them torn apart by dogs. Or he would burn them alive at night to provide light for his evening garden parties. So it's in that political climate, under that type of leadership, that Paul is saying, submit to those in authority, respect your leaders. Because we're not called just to respect the leaders that we agree with or those, or those that are like us. We're called to respect all leaders. Another way of saying this is we're called to be good citizens. 
Then he goes on verse 2 to say, we should not speak evil of anyone or stir up conflict. We should always be ready to do good. So in these two verses, Paul is talking about how we engage other people in our daily lives. Author Tim Keller says, these verses aren't just talking about private life. It is talking about your public life, being law-abiding, working for peace in society, showing a humble servant attitude toward all people, all beliefs, all races, working for peace with all the groups out there, and mostly ready to do whatever is good. So what does it mean to do good? Doing good just means that our actions benefit others and point them to Jesus. We behave in such a way that if we moved out of our neighborhoods or we left our schools or our workplaces, people would notice and they would miss our presence. Because we have contributed to causing the community around us or the people in our lives to flourish. We've made a difference. We're good citizens and good neighbors. It's easy to do good when it's fun or convenient. Like if you drop off cookies on your neighbor's porch or you order school supplies off of a teacher's Amazon wish list. Those things are good. They help others. They take a certain amount of sacrifice. Usually the recipient is really grateful and it makes us feel good about ourselves. But what about situations where we have to deal with difficult or annoying people? Where we have to really humble ourselves and being kind when the other person is being selfish or mean. I want to pause here and make a distinction. I'm not talking about abusive interactions, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Those things are illegal. I'm not talking about toxic relationships. I'm talking about dealing with those people, the people that we disagree with, the ones who are arrogant and opinionated and selfish. How do we engage those people? Or how do we respond to people who instigate conflict? What do we do when we're provoked? I'm friends with a couple, and several months back, the husband posted something that I thought was safe. I remember thinking this post was going to be universally liked and accepted. But because we're living in this alternate reality where it seems like almost nothing is universally agreed upon, people started commenting and attacking. And I mean like personal attacks. So I was reading the comments of these people coming for my friends, and I was so angry on their behalf. I was outraged by what I was reading. So I'm watching this unfold for a couple of hours, and finally the wife commented on the post. And in response to the angry and sometimes hateful comments, she said, Hey, let me humanize some of the commenters and talk about relational connections. And then she started to list how they knew the people in the comments and about how their family had been blessed by them in the past. And it completely changed the tone of people's comments. Because in response to slander and quarreling, she came back with gentleness and humility. She responded with good. Not because it's easy or convenient, but because this is what we're called to do. But it's so hard to respond like my friend. How do we even get to the place where we humble ourselves and we treat someone else with gentleness when they don't deserve it? Paul tells us the answer in the following verses. Once, we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy and we hated each other. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. 
He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. The way that we get to humility is by remembering who we were when Jesus saved us. It's easy to think of those people as foolish and disobedient. That's them over there full of evil and envy and hate, but I'm different from them. And Paul is saying, no, don't look down on them because you were once just like them. I like the verb tense of verse 3. We were foolish. We were misled. We were full of evil. We hated each other. Because then I can fool myself into thinking that these behaviors and sins are in the past. That used to be me, but no longer. And I want to tell you this is true, but I can't. I'm embarrassed to admit to you that I have never struggled more with being judgmental and critical of other people than I have in this past year and a half. And it wasn't just around the big topics like politics or race relations or COVID. It was things like people would debate which fast food restaurant makes the best burgers. And here in Texas, the top two contenders are usually In-N-Out and Whataburger. And then I would be like, clearly In-N-Out is the winner. Fight me. But I've never even had Whataburger. I don't even know what it tastes like. But I was willing to fight with people about why In-N-Out was better. So foolish. It got to the point that I was so angry and so triggered by people that I had to talk to my counselor about it. So I brought it up during one of our sessions and I confessed that I was feeling so antagonistic towards people, assuming the worst about them. And I gave him some specific examples and I kind of wanted him to say, yeah, you're right. They're the worst. But instead, he said, okay, you do need to think about what needs to be said and when it needs to be said. But before that, you need to figure out what's going on in your heart. And then he said, Cindy, you have such a strong narrative in your mind about these other people that there's almost nothing that they could do that you would perceive as good or even neutral. And you're filtering everything through your narrative and you're making conclusions about them based on a comment or an interaction or a social media post. Basically, my counselor was saying, hey, let's take a step back and figure out what's happening with you. He's not giving me breathing techniques. He's not telling me to count to 10 when I get triggered. He's looking deeper because what we're pursuing in counseling is long-term growth, not temporary behavior modification. So we started talking about the specific narratives that I have about other people. And a narrative is just a preconceived notion that causes us to assume a lot about the other person and then fill in the gaps of any information that we don't have. So we fill in the gaps about people's priorities or character or motives. And then that causes us to act as if our thoughts were true. We don't pause and ask questions. We don't humanize them. We just charge ahead with our beliefs about who they are and why they say or do certain things. So as my counselor and I are talking about these narratives and the assumptions that I'm making, we're uncovering this sin in my heart. And I'm starting to feel really ashamed. Because I know what we're called to as Jesus followers. And the way that I was feeling about people was not it. 
I was telling myself, you should be further along than this. How could you be so hateful and judgmental of other people? You're so far from who God wants you to be. And I could feel shame wrap around me like a cozy blanket because I'm super familiar with it and I know what it feels like. I was forgetting that being a Christ follower is a process of constantly growing and maturing. It's not a state of arrival. The Holy Spirit continues to work in me and transform me to make me more and more like Christ. And he'll do this until the day I die. Then my counselor said, hey, we need to make a distinction between shame and conviction. He said, the Holy Spirit illuminates where we fall short. This is where God wants me to be. This is where I am right now. So once I realize that disparity, I have to decide what I'm going to do with that information. The truth gives me the opportunity to grow and change, or I can choose to be stagnant and just stay right where I am. Shame is an accusation. It says something is inherently wrong with me. It's rear-facing. It looks at the past and it says there's no redemption. But conviction is forward-facing and it's grace-focused. And it acknowledges, yeah, we're not fully who God created us to be yet. But there is hope in Jesus. Conviction moves us forward to be more and more like Christ. But conviction can easily be twisted into shame. So we need to be aware of that and on guard against that so that we don't fall into the enemy's trap of getting stuck in shame. We need to hold on to the truth of verses 4 and 5. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. God saves us because of his kindness and love and mercy towards us, not because we've done anything to deserve it. He is fully aware of who we are, of all the ways that we fall short, but he desperately wants us anyway. God loved me when I was foolish and disobedient when I first became a Jesus follower, and he loves me when I'm foolish and disobedient now. God saved us not because we deserved it, but because of his radical grace. This is why we respond with good to other people, because we've received God's radical grace. God, Paul reminds us of why, he, why we are saved, of how we are saved, so that we can live into why we are saved as he continues in verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. When Paul writes, this is a trustworthy saying, he means his words in verses 3 to 7. So he's essentially talking about the gospel message. He's saying you can trust that the gospel message is true and reliable. And when he says insist on these teachings, Paul means emphasize this message. Repeat it. Remind people of why they were saved and what God had done for them. And I get why Paul is saying repeat this message. Say it again and again. Because for me, it's not that I don't know how God has called me to live. My problem is that oftentimes I forget to do the things that I already know. So Paul is telling Titus to keep on reminding them. 
Because when we remember the truth of who we are, and we remember what God has done for us, that will naturally cause us to live in such a way that we influence the world around us. We'll begin to see others as Jesus sees them. We'll love others the way that we've been loved by Jesus. Our relationships will change. Our families will change. Our communities will change. And we'll start to shape the society around us. Because God didn't save us to escape the world, but to impact it. And the way that we impact the world is through doing good. God saved us so that we could do good here So that we could do things that benefit others and point them to Jesus because he cares about what's happening in the world right now. If he didn't, then right when we became Jesus followers, he would take us up to heaven immediately. But he doesn't do that. He leaves us here because there's work to do. This is why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is restoring this world and we're to actively participate in that process. He's restoring the world to what he intended it to be and to what it will one day be. And you and I get to play a part in making earth just a little bit more like heaven. So when we're trying to decide how to interact with people, how to engage with them or how to respond, we need to ask ourselves this question. What does doing good look like in this situation? Doing good will probably require some kind of sacrifice. Sacrificing our pride, or our preferences, our time, our money, our resources. It'll definitely require gentleness and humility. It'll probably be difficult for us. We might have to reuse, we might have to use or rebuild kindness and humility muscles that have atrophied over this past year and a half. Doing good will be different from what others are doing. It'll be unexpected and radical, and in some situations, it'll be crazy generous and gracious. But if we call ourselves Jesus followers, this is the only option for us. This is the only way we can respond, because we have been on the receiving end of unexpected of radical, of crazy generous. Because that's what God's love and mercy and grace is like all the time. We cannot live as Jesus has called us to without remembering. Remembering who we were. Remembering what God has done for us. And remembering that we're called to respond with good all the time and point people to Jesus. I'm going to close and pray for us. And I'm going to pray the same words that Jeff prayed over us in week one from Psalm 139. So would you pray with me? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. God, this past season has been so difficult in so many ways. Thank you for sustaining us, for showing us grace and mercy. We would have been lost without it. Thank you for the work that you continue to do in each of us to make us more and more like Christ. Help us to respond to your love by doing good to others while we're here on this earth. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.